Yes, so grateful to do over Dhamma because all the great chants come because of him. <laughs> See you all. No, they come for breakfast, Anoma. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> Ajahn Viradhamma is extremely humble. <laughs> but, uh, it's not easy to be loved by everybody in the Sangha. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably blushing now. <laughs> That's not a small feat. So, whenever there's any possibility of spending time with him, then everybody will think, oh. And that, that's not the case with every Ajahn. <laughs> We, create, we have such really lovely friendships in the Sangha. Those of us who have lived this life for so long are really very special. We don't see each other that often. But. So Ajahn Viradhamma and I, we've been in the same community for about 40 years. But I've never spent, I think, an, an entire year in the same monastery. Yeah. Right. We've just always crossed paths. So there's others I spent a lot of time with, but even though I, I felt um, a lot of affinity with, with Ajahn V and um, really enjoyed his company, the currents of Sangha life were just <laughs> always kept us in different places. So he was at the airport when I first arrived back from Thailand with, uh, at the age of one. <laughs> he and, Aj- and the then Ajahn Ananda were there at the airport and then um, we were at Chithas for a little bit and then you were off to Arnhem and then when I was um, went up to Arnhem and you were already I was on my way to New Zealand when you were to New Zealand yeah, yeah. so uh, We've never, we've never really. Uh, there was a, a few months at Chithurst where we actually lived in the same monastery, <laughs> fixing, fixing the same roof. He was doing the guttering, and I was doing the roof tiles. I was the gutter snipe. <laughs> I had a very interesting insight into. Um, <coughs> well, it's more, more an, intri- in, an insight into self rather than not self. <coughs> but um, I've, I meant, I, if, if you've listened to, lo- to Dhamma talks of mine, you probably heard me mention it. But it was it was a kind of an embarrassing insight. So <coughs> we we had scaffolding all around the house. It's a, a um, it's a fairly tall two story Victorian building with an attic, and so we had scaffolding all the way up to the um, the roof level, and um, and it's it's about twenty two rooms, so it's quite a complicated external um, plan. So the, the the scaffolding went sort of here, you know, in and out, and then over the it had a, a valleyed roof. So um, there was a lot of guttering, sort of complicated guttering to do around the edge of the building. It wasn't just like a square, <laughs> like like your building here. Um, so the uh, we were replacing all of the the, the roof and. And the old cast iron guttering, and my, so my job would mean that okay, you do the gutters. So uh, I've always been quite nimble, moving around, climbing, and such like, um, and 
quite flexible, so I was quite happy, and I didn't, I didn't really have a fear of heights, so I was quite happy scrambling around in the scaffolding and going up and down between different levels and climbing up ladders and such like, <coughs> putting up um, lightning rods and such like on the chimney. That was fun. <laughs> so the, this particular insight came, so we've been doing this for about, this about five or six weeks, so I was pretty blasé about moving around inside the, the scaffolding. And my, uh, I had the spirit level that was uh, like a, a, a small aluminium spirit level. It was kind of handy. It would go in the, in the pouch with other bits that I needed for the, doing the, the leveling of the gutters. And <clears throat> so I, I had this, my, uh, my short spirit level in my left hand. And <clears throat> so I'm climbing through the, through the scaffolding. And I, I and I'm, I'm uh, about to to sort of reach for the next scaffolding bar, and so all my weight is going to go onto this hand. So I think, well, should I? And then the thought comes: Should I take the spirit level out? Because metal on metal, that might not hold very well. And I thought, nah. <laughs> so I took hold of a scaffolding bar with this with the um, the metal uh, level against my hand. So clamped it on top of the bar. So my grip is about like this, with a <laughs> a good couple of inches below it. Clamped it on top of the bar, put my whole weight onto it. Of course, it swiveled right round with no traction at all, and I dropped. So I'm at the uh, at roof level, and I'm falling through the scaffolding towards the garden. Why do you know about this? I kept it quiet. <laughs> and as I'm descending, you know, and of course there could have been scaffolding bars kind of sticking out and I could have landed on a, a pieces of rebar. And yeah. on the way down, the, th- the one thought in my mind is I hope nobody's watching. <laughs> so vanity was more powerful than the fear of mutilation. Or, Injury, pain, physical death. As long as, I didn't care if I died or got mute or maimed. As long as I didn't look like an idiot, it was all right. So that, so I, and then in the in the flower bed, fortunately, it was a straight drop from where I plummeted, and there was some you know, little those little box bushes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just, there was conveniently placed. So I landed on some box kind of shrubs in the garden, and. So, <laughs> and and it really was like, uh, thank goodness nobody saw me rather than thank goodness I, I'm not being impaled or I'm not bleeding or so I haven't broken my back right yeah from the roof level so that was at the front house front of the house yeah, yeah where those so but near the, near the you know where the um, the, the reception room is oh yeah right, right. so by that by right the from the top there yeah is so that from where, the, where that door the south facing door yeah. just to the left of that and I went straight down into the flower, but that's a long way. That's a long way. Long enough to think. I hope nobody's watching. <laughs> so that was a, a kind of an embarrassing insight. But it was it was it was helpful in its way because it showed me like you are really vain. <laughs> I got a big problem with vanity. No injuries. Nothing. I got us got up and walked away and just sort of climbed back up my ladder. You know. <laughs> Carried on with the job. I, well, I didn't even have. Sh- I wasn't shocked or concussed or anything. That box is really bouncy. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. 
It was, but it was a bit of a wake-up call, really, that, you know, oh. that um, just how powerful egotism is. <laughs> you know, that really, you know, you're, you're facing death and you're more concerned about your ego <laughs> than, than anything else. But you also became more careful. I did. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do that manoeuvre again. But... Um, yeah, it was an extraordinarily stupid thing to do. It was sort of, it was just, you know, it was quite calculated. And this metal on metal does not hold. So, and I did, I mean, if if yeah, you know, just didn't have enough grip. If the fingers could have gone round it, it would have been okay. But it was that with the with this with the um, the added thickness of the of the level against the scaffolding bar, it was, you know, it was that much. I just it was. <laughs> it's just incredibly stupid. But sometimes things that make perfect sense at the time end up producing injuries, I'm sure. You probably had a couple of those. Uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> don't tell. Don't tell. How are the mosquitoes in the tent? Not too bad, huh? No, that was fun. That worked well, I was surprised. Much better than feeding the black flies last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it was very lovely to meditate and rain. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that you know, yeah. we've been showing out a number of kind of all kinds of Canadian experiences on the water. And that's a very Canadian experience. I mean, it's America too if you go camping, right? Yeah, oh yeah. That thing of being in a space where the rain's coming down on a, on a piece of canvas. And the birds. Yes. In yes. the background, yeah. So you're really doing Canadiana. <laughs> no black bears yet. What's that? No black bears. Oh, yeah, I'm working on it. Got <laughs> 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 one <more> day. <laughs> There's quite a bit of punny around here, actually. <laughs> so now being the abbot of Amaravati you you have a huge number of people to speak with and responsibilities what's your mainstay to keep you from getting frazzled or going crazy. What's your what's your kind of constant that keeps you centered? Uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. I focus on that rather than the the stuff that's there or not there. I focus on the attitude towards it. And um, so I talk a lot about loving kindness as a, a as an acceptance, and that. Uh, the more that your mind goes, it shouldn't be this way, or I prefer it not to be like this, and I, I, want it to, I want it to be like that, then you just create suffering right there. And so it's more the attitude of, of acceptance, which doesn't mean not being passive, but rather that sense of readiness to, to receive, to be with whatever's going on, and not think that it should be otherwise. Um, and uh, And also I don't, I've got nothing else to be doing. <laughs> I don't create that 
that idea, I wish I was somewhere else doing something else. And I've got a few books I haven't written yet. <laughs> <laughs> the world will keep turning if they don't get written. But uh, I think that also helps a lot. In, also, but it's also around the, the whole a- attitudinal area. Because if there was... If the mind creates, oh, I'd rather be doing something else. I'd rather be somewhere else or doing something else. I don't want to bother with this because that is more interesting or more valuable. That I, 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 for so many years, I've just not given that kind of that, that thought. I mean, just even saying the thought sounds kind of weird to me. Mm-hmm. And I and I know that if you do believe, you buy into that, and you sort of give that energy, you believe in that, then that creates a lot of suffering because then you're always like we're talking about patience today. You're waiting for this to be over to get to that because that is somehow more real and good than this. But uh, those reflections, I mean, it's also being so Lumpur Samedo's elbow for many, many years, and him always so, so, so much emphasizing the akaliko quality, the timeless quality of Dhamma, that you know, this is the way it is, not, it's not over there, you know, this, mm. it's, and so that, um, that quality of uh, not investing in some other some other place, some other time that's somehow better, or that's not this. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so wherever I, wherever I spot that, I try to, to, to notice it. Like I was telling you about this, um, uh, every day at Amravati, at breakfast time, I'm available for whoever wants to come up and talk to me. So this is like an average uh, number of guests... Every day. Every day. On weekends, this would be tiny. <laughs> this is an average number of, of guests at Amravati during the week these days. So, <clears throat> and then after, so at breakfast time, and then after the meal, every day I'm available. So whoever comes to, wants to talk immediately after the meal. And so often when it's, so the meal time is the same as here, eleven thirty. So by by the time you got to about one or one thirty. And then most of the mealtime people have, have moved on. And then there's a sense of when you notice the doors of the sala are opening and some new arrivals come at 1.45. Then they say, oh. <laughs> so, uh, um, when, so I noticed that was happening sometimes. Or at breakfast when I thought, okay, everyone's cleared out. This, uh, you know, I, I can go now. And then that feeling, oh, there's somebody else is sort of has been hovering, waiting for their moment, and so I, uh, so spotting that kind of, oh, I don't want to be bothered. I want to, I don't want to be bothered with this person, or this thing. I'd rather be doing that. So I saw that, and I thought, well, that doesn't, that, that's not really helpful. So spotting that, um, please don't bother me. So, I, uh, so I, I uh, changed my attitude to please pounce, <laughs> you know, or pounce here. And uh, so I was talking about this at, uh, in one of the Dhamma readings during the winter retreat. And so at the end of the retreat, one of the sisters made me a new sitting cloth with pounce here <laughs> embroidered in large letters along the front with a little mouse <laughs> escaping from a pouncing cat. <laughs> but, uh, just, the, just the mouse. So, so, and that's helpful to say, rather than don't bother me, pounce here. And... Uh, so that I feel I find that that's a um, it's uh, makes a lot of space and that uh, it's that resentment mm-hmm. of like uh, 
I don't want to bother or uh, you know, I don't uh, I haven't got time I mean sometimes I really haven't got time you know someone will say can I talk to you and I say well I have a meeting that's beginning at 2 o'clock it's now one fifty-eight. um <laughs> So be brief, <laughs> and then you know, you, and you can say that, and people will still yeah, understand. Yeah. But I, so much of it is in the attitude, and also Lumpur Chah's teachings on that kind of area. He said, you know, the abbot's job is to be a rubbish pit, um, and it, and it's it's not it's not too derogatory because the the way it used to work before they invented plastic or much plastic going to the Isan, a rubbish pit would be about sort of 10 foot by 10 foot and about ten, yeah, 8 or 10 foot deep and a village would have one of these and, and you could throw everything into it and it would just rot down so the, you could keep throwing things into it for months and months and months and years and it wouldn't fill up it would rot away it would sort of leach down into the soil so the abbot being a rubbish pit means that everyone, that's your job is to receive everything and then it doesn't fill up nowadays of course it fills up because <laughs> of all the plastic non non-organic waste yeah. but that that idea of an, but an abbot being a rather than sort of a glorious dispenser of the holy dhamma more the, the abbot's job is to be a rubbish pit to receive everyone's garbage to whatever people are experiencing in terms of their fears and greed and, and you know, opinions and aversions and conflicts just to be a receptive space for it and how? Well, what's your strengths around con- uh, conflicts? Because Amaravati has a lot of people, a lot of nationalities, a lot of views and opinions. And you must be the arbitrator of a lot of things. Yes. Well, I grew up with two arguing sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned to be the guy in the middle. Who's a... Bless my dear sisters. <laughs> I get on very well with both of them, but they... They've been fighting since we were tiny. <laughs> they just don't jive. <laughs> so I was always sort of, I can't believe she just said that. Do you, do you know what she just did? <laughs> and you kind of, oh. <laughs> and then just being a sort of mediator. So I grew up with the... With, uh, also just, you know, in terms of personality-wise. Um, personality-wise, um, I, 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 I like harmony and mediation and so and that position would have cultivated that. Yeah, and also living in community for many, many years, you you learn how to listen to people, and also um, that I mean, because you, you, you've been among even much much longer than I have, and so you know how someone comes to you and says, "Do you know what just happened? Do, do, do you know what I John so and so just did? I can't believe this. It's outrageous. It's stupid. It's crazy." And, and so, rather than getting swept up in this sort of flurry of desperation and, of, and anger you go oh very interesting okay so can, can you just walk me through that again so rather than oh yes you've got good reason to be upset you then okay so then okay now go and find the other Ajahn <laughs> you get her side of it you know and uh, ah, so and so uh, that um Sort of mediation through listening, really, and it's it's not often that you have to actually adjudicate that much. It's more so just by listening and and then find, more and finding a middle ground yeah. where you, know, you can you know you because you're trying to find ways that 
it's it's fair for everyone. Mm-hmm. No one's no one. There's no favourites. No one no one gets a sort of special treatment. And and so then that uh, if <clears throat> even if it's something that's difficult, if you uh, I'll sort of discuss it and discuss it and discuss it and over discuss it until everyone feels okay. We've talked about we've talked we've talked about it, and so that everyone knows every single angle of a particular issue has been thought through. And so even if there's something that you know a certain section of the community are going to be unhappy about, at least everyone feels like well we gave it a lot of a, we gave it all the time and all the airing we could. And that even if they know oh Ajahnamra would really like it to be this way, they they know that uh, you know I'll be prepared to hear other people's perspectives and I can change my mind and I can be persuaded but I think the, the main thing is listening mm-hmm. but also listening with sincerely rather than yes I'm listening you know and you you know fung down my rap like we, I was saying at the embassy yeah. and then there's the opposite where you listen and believe too much well I don't tend to yeah <laughs> that, that was more about 20 years ago I, I, I would get swept up in those you know people get sort of really indignant or excited and, and I would get swept up and then you get burned a few times and you get those two extremes and you find that middle way of listening yeah. but not getting sucked into it and yet not rejecting mm-hmm. <laughs> but also I have you know I, I'm I'm a gregarious personality type mm-hmm. so I don't have that sense of wanting to I mean I like my own company but I'm not. Uh, I would always be slightly surprised when, when, when people would say, oh, "I can't stand the festival days because there's so many people." Like, oh. <laughs> it's never bothered me being around crowds of people. I, I, I'm quite happy to be bonding with loads of people all at the same time. So, for people who are a bit more solitary, who are not gregarious, then it's more challenging. Mm-hmm. But I think it's one of the reasons why I got I invited to do this is because I got a gregarious. Garrulous personality, <laughs> loquacious. Ajahn, <laughs> yeah, that was really helpful what you said about the, um, reframing the pouncing. And so, um, you know, that idea of experiencing inversion, are, are there any other ways that you turn have tos into want tos? Uh, well, uh, Lumpur Sumedho is a genius in terms of, um, sort of the use of reflective wisdom. And so over the years, there's many different approaches that he would teach that um, are very, very hand- helpful. And so a lot to do with, with tracking your own emotional reactions, your own preferences, kind of being listening to your own thoughts and... Um, uh, one of the ways that he would, he uh, he would pre- uh, present that I found incredibly helpful is just to take things to absurdity. So that you rather than think, you know, if you have a jealous thought or an angry thought or a, a resentful thought, like, what about me? I didn't get one. That's not fair, you know. And you realise, well, that's a, a kind of childish, resentful thought, and that you uh, so that. Rather than thinking, oh, that's unskillful, that's very childish, I shouldn't, uh, you know, a good practitioner wouldn't think that way, right? So he would, he would encourage the, the, the sort of catching that and, and, and essentially replaying it cl- loudly and clearly to yourself. Uh, and then 
So it takes quite a bit of mindfulness to catch your thought processes. But it's amazingly helpful because as soon as you, you, like, you, you catch that thought, and because if you suppress it or push it away or just criticize it, then you empower it. You make it, I am a person who has got those sort of childish, selfish thoughts and I shouldn't, I shouldn't have them. But then, so that you unconsciously empower it and make it stronger and make an identity around it by pushing it away. But if you inflate it, it's like, that's not fair. What about me? You can almost laugh at it. You can't get to the end of the sentence without cracking up, really. And it's, uh, it's very simple, but, and you have to be quick on your feet to, 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 to really make it work. But it's extraordinarily effective. Yeah. And <clears throat> the, uh, whether it's desire, or fear, or aversion, or conceit, like, well, I'm right and you're wrong, so there. <laughs> like, this is a joke. You know? like, if I just had that, I would be happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you'd, and the thing is that rather than the sort of superego, you know, the rational mind saying, um, this is a conceited thought, don't, you, know, you, know, let, you, you should let go of it, by making it sort of front center and getting it to speak up, it loses its power. By it, by seeing what's there, because you know, yeah, if you got that, it would be satisfying for half a minute, and then you want something else. Of course, like you have for the whole rest of your life. So you don't have to tell yourself, "I should let go." Rather, the letting go happens without any kind of self view. It's just like, <clears throat> if you were different, I'd be happy. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just a joke. But then we, but we believe those things. When they're sort of off at the edges, and sort of murmuring in the background, we either believe them, we don't recognize them, and we believe that they're true, or that we, we notice them and we think, oh, shut up, shut up, you shouldn't be that way. Uh, but if you get them front center and say, okay, talk to me. If you were different, I would be happy. And it just, it just falls apart on its own. So that... Um, that way of deflating, you know, like emotional reactivity, judgment, habitual judgments and opinions, and the sort of self-righteousness that goes on, that gets formed around that. It's a very, very effective method. And it's a, but you, ha, you, in the meditation, it's helpful to be, you, like in formal meditation, to be running that as an exercise during the formal practice, so then when you're on the fly, and it's actually in the middle of your office life, or your family life, or you're on the highway, then, then you can you have the, the, the skill to apply that. If you only try and do it when you're on the road, or with, in a family meeting, family conversation, then it's, you're asking too much. So it's useful to carry that out in the meditation, formal meditation, when the other people aren't actually there, or the, you know, you're all just sitting with your eyes closed. But getting a, a perspective on your own patterns of thinking and essentially learning not to believe your own thoughts and, uh, and getting that kind of a perspective is very, very helpful. So John, would you recommend, um, like with what you just said, um, like to, to just kind of focus on one approach or there's other approaches where you just kind of watch it and just kind of see, see okay, this is sit with it, stay with it. Um, this is what I'm feeling right now, this is what I'm thinking right now, or you kind of, you know, make it this big thing and make it ridiculous, 
would you would you recommend that you kind of focus on one approach and try to make that your habit whenever it actually arises? Uh, what I used to do, I would, because it was it was amazing living with Lumpur. I, I was sort of in England with Lumpur Sumedho for about thirteen years, and in those days he would give about a couple of dhamma talks a day, at least one, if not two or three, every day. So there was an extremely rich <laughs> mother load of dhamma instruction, and so. During those years, what I would do is I'd often take a practice and just sort of run it for a couple of weeks. So I'd, he would say something like that: it's "Okay, take take the notice your judgments or your fears, your desires, your aversions, and you know notice it, catch it, replay it, and consciously I think the unthinkable. Like I wish you were dead. If she was dead, that would be great. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the and then watching how it falls apart, you realize." I don't want that at all. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, and seeing that, so that will be, I, I would sort of say, okay, for the next two weeks, I'll just do that. Or you also would teach a lot about um, using body, mindfulness of the body and body sensation in terms of emotion and learning to use the feelings of the body as an access point <coughs> for emotion. Um, because particularly with emotions rather than opinions, but emotions, uh, the 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 capacity to get drawn in and sort of absorbed in the story that conflict with your brother or that kind of grief over some loss uh, it's suddenly the, the mind just goes to the story so he would t- talk a lot about uh, developing the uh, mindfulness of the physical sensations around emotion so I would like for a couple of weeks or a month I'd say okay this is what I'm doing for this time and, and make that a, a, a like a particular theme and just explore it. It's like kind of running, like running an experiment mm-hmm. and consciously parking everything else. Otherwise, you can get a bit too fragmented. But park the other things. Okay, for this, this two-week period or this month, I'll just do this, see if I can clarify the judgments or using body sensations. Uh, and, uh, and then just seeing what the result is. And then everyone's different. So that for somebody, the, if the mind works in a more of a narrative way, then that. Uh, clarifying the, the thinking process might be a good uh, um, access point. Someone else has more of a, uh, you know, uh, of a feeling for the body and, and the body awareness, and that using the uh, physical sensations might be an easier access point. So that you sort of try various things out. But I, I did it for like distinct chunks of time, and just thought, okay, let's let's do this and make a program of it. And I would remind myself every morning, like in the morning sitting every day. Okay, during, during today, it's my intention to keep track of the judgments that the mind makes. Or, uh, or to keep bringing the attention to the physical sensations. Or, or, um, or it might be something um, more broad, like, okay, I'm going to make the contemplation a Nietzsche. Whatever it is, all I'm interested in is a Nietzsche. Something like that. And so I would just, during the morning sitting, I'd like re- refresh the intention during the morning city, okay, this is the program for today. And then, of course, you know, by 11 o'clock in the morning, like, oh, oh I totally forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but you just sort of refresh. And then after a few days, you sort of get, get used to it. And, then, um, and I found that helpful. So you're, you're literally priming the, 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 sort of the program in the, in the first thing in the morning. Okay, during today, this is my, along with everything else that needs to be taken care of, this is what I'm, I'm aiming to use in terms of working with the, the mind during the day. And particularly, like, both Chithurst and Amravati in particular were very active places. So 
during, there wasn't a lot of formal meditation during the day. Very, very rarely. It was all interacting with people, the work scene, traveling places and such like. So it was, you're in live, interactive situations rather than in the meditation hall. But I, I'd do it on retreat as well. What about your recollections? <coughs> yeah, I, I love that sense of taking a, even a deeper theme, like you said, the mind is not a person. Mm-hmm. I like to use this as in awareness. So I think there are like subsets of larger themes, and the larger theme is for me always the awakening, the awakening of the mind. So when you talk about making conscious, I say, a judgment, uh, that for me is a brilliant technique. I used it with Lompo. And it all, not only does it deflate the judgment, it also emphasizes the awareness. Because yes. now you have awareness yeah, of it. It, this it, is now an object. It brings the mind back to that. Exactly, yeah. So <clears throat> the other day, uh, last weekend or whenever it was, I was... The first thing I used this when, when Ajahn Sumedha was, was first talking about it, um, the first thing I used it for very actively was the thought, if only I was somebody else, I would be happy. Mm. Everything will be great. I, I used to think that a lot. <laughs> and so I would uh, just bring that to mind. I would kind of uh, note whenever my mind had that thought, and I'd go, okay, rewind, okay. If only I was someone else, that would be great. Anyone else. <laughs> and it's, it's, far, it's farcical. Uh, but that, that was a very deep rut. <laughs> if only I was somebody else, everything would be great. And, this, and when, you, when you replay it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's kind of weird and ridiculous. But yet, those kind of thought patterns can be really obstructive. But just like Ajahn Viridhamma was saying, is when you, you kind of clarify that, then that which is aware of that thought pattern is, is at that moment, is the refuge. That, that's like, oh, that thought pattern is not self. That's not who and what, what I am. That, that's, that's just a, a pattern of experience. It's not, it's not anything that's solid or real. So then it's like you're really establishing the refuge of awareness moment by moment, but it's sort of through the the um, recognizing of those sort of afflictive thoughts and, and, and emotions. So you use the very afflictive thought as a way of becoming more mindful. Yeah. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. That really so th- there's this wonderful <coughs> phrase that Ajahn Chah came, uh, would use. He said, uh, if it's not good, let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good. <laughs> <laughs> so if you see some kind of afflictive issue, and you think, oh, that, you know, feeling jealous or uh, angry or anxious, and they so will let go of that. And, uh, and, it, and it, you know, the, the letting goes happen, but it, it's, <laughs> it's still very alive, very strong. Then you use that, that, very, that very obstructive or afflictive quality as a basis for, for wisdom. You, you, you make it work for you. Mm-hmm. So that just Ajahn Chah was was also uh, Ajahn Sumedho were brilliant at coming up with these little brief statements that just carry so much meaning. If it's not good, let it die. If it doesn't die, make it good.
Another thing with Amravati is delegation. Yes, that's you can't be a. It's if you if you try to be a control freak, you'd be a dead control freak. <laughs> Very quickly. Within a day. Huh? Within a day. <laughs> it's a. It's like. It's like standing at the on the beach and saying to the sea, "I'm in charge here." <laughs> There's a nut on the beach, you know, talking to the sea. <laughs> but that's what it's like, you know. It's like to to be in the middle of a community of. 50, 60 people and say, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge. <laughs> okay, you, waves over here. Come this way, yeah, waves over there. No, no, you stay, you stay. It's <laughs> it don't work. It doesn't work. So, uh, being ready to dele- delegate and to let people make mistakes, let people learn from their own mistakes, not to be fixed on any particular outcome. Mm. And so that, like, for years, uh, years and years ago, um, I found this um, this Thai phrase, "Di Mungan." Lumpo Jan, when Lumpo Jan came to spend a year at Amravati, mm-hmm. it was one of Ajahn Chah's senior disciples. He'd never been outside of Thailand before, so it was all very unusual territory for him. And uh, being in the West and the Western customs and Western people and such like. And he was a very much a sort of Isan lad, from you know, sort of a country boy from the, from the a bit of a bit of a lad, bit of a lad. Bit of a lad. He had some interesting <laughs> tattoos that only a few of his close disciples had seen. <laughs> so uh, he uh, he was very surprised by a lot of things in the West and kind of the way of life and the customs and things and. And so you'd be explaining things to him and, and, and sort of talking about how things were done. Or, and, he, and he would use this phrase, Di Mungan, well, that's good too. You know, that's okay too. And, uh, and you know, he was known as one of the most sort of strict and sort of orthodox and sort of by-the-book uh, monks in, in Thailand. And it was just so powerful. He kept saying, Di Mungan, Di Mungan, you know, that's good too. That's okay too. And he was just so adaptable. So that is a really, in terms of, of working with a big group of people, living in a big group, that to be ready to be surprised by somebody else's perspective, well, I, you know, I think we should build it over here rather than over there. Go, hmm. Okay, well, why not? Just because I thought of putting it over here, well, why shouldn't over there be okay? Okay, be mungan. And being ready to be sort of surprised, mm-hmm. being ready to have other, other people that have better ideas than you have, <laughs> Inconceivable, I know. <laughs> but it really, it's a, if you want if you want things to work. Also, you're giving people authority to make their own mistakes and try things out, letting them grow. Yeah, rather than feeling like you've got to you've got to do all the instructing or you've got to um, decide what they should learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the mm-hmm. giving people a sense of a free reign, but also. Um, so delegating, letting people have, have genuinely having their own authority, mm-hmm. and then you are also standing back while they make a dreadful mistake, you know. And then, you know, not, not life-threatening, but <laughs> can sometimes be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's. But I feel that sometimes it's important for people to, to you know, take responsibility, try things out, and then if it ends up wasting a lot of money, they won't forget. <laughs> You know, they they learn that, and so it's not being, you know, casual. But mm. you know, you think, okay, well, that's you know, 
not not a bad idea. And then realizing, Phew, there's better way, better, better ways to have done that. But then you learn, and then it, it's not it's not so much being wasteful. It's rather like helping the kids to grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, so that you know the uh, you, you, because if you try to be overprotective and or, or over controlling, you know, people don't really learn. They just feel hemmed in and resentful. Childish. Yeah, they get childish. Yeah, they're, they're infantilized. Yeah, yeah. It's very, and within a very um, stratified, a hierarchical system like the sangha, it's very easy for the for the elders to infantilize the, the younger people, mm-hmm. and that, uh, or to infantilize the lay people. I mean, some people look. You know, anyone who's got hair and earrings. <laughs> You know, it's obviously a, it's the kind of spiritually spiritual kind of you know disaster. That and really, sort of talking down to the lay community uh, as if you're the, or they're little children. And someone's been you know, meditating for forty years, and it's probably got a lot more meditation experience than you have. But they can the, because it's a hierarchical system, it can disempower uh, people at the lower end. And and I thought Lumpur Sumedha was a really good example of that. That he would relate. I mean, he was very senior, but he would relate on a very on a human level as well as a hierarchical level. Mm. So he would talk to the you know, Gary Cars or the novices or the junior community members and, and members of the lay community as an equal. You know, would would be quite respectful, so interested in people's ideas, even if they were just like a newly arrived Anagarika, He would be happily sit there while someone sort of spouts off their philosophical theory and, and he'd be saying, oh really, well, where did you get that from? Or, Have you got a book on that? And he would, he, really, you know, he, he was, and I, and I found that really beautiful because some, some elders don't do that. It's always they're kind of in charge, up above and then they don't chat with the ranks. And, and Lompoir also uh, reveal all his most dreadful secrets. I mean, that's always that impresses all of us that he'll talk about some terrible mistakes he's made in yes. his practice. And, Ooh, that's that's good. Uh, I can still think of the name of that chief petty officer on his <laughs> ship in the in the navy, and it can still rouse certain feelings <laughs> sixty years later. He's <laughs> yeah, a great teacher. Another thing for. Uh, is uh, fairness. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets equal treatment. No, mm-hmm. no favorites. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel that's something that can be very destructive in communities. If because as an abbot, you're sort of in a you're you're put in a powerful position. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're in the middle and you're the voice. So it, the position carries a lot of power. So if you if you have favorites or people that you spend much more time with or that you're kind of chummy with. Then it means those people who you're not chummy with, <laughs> so left off at the edge. Or the you know, the agent never even talks to me. You know, you never even get noticed. And so, so I felt it's uh, it's really important to have no favourites, no no special relationships or special friendships and such like. But really, even even Stevens for everybody, as much as insofar as that's physically possible. And I've seen I've seen special relationships that Amravati Chitters just go down the tube. 
people get really, really chummy, and then all of a sudden they're the worst enemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it, I think it's it's a, in terms of of leadership and creating because I see that the job of an abbot is to create a, a training environment, mm. and that even though that was one of the things that in the, in the first six months or so that I was in Thailand. Um, I didn't come to Wat Nanashat because of Ajahn Chah. I didn't even know he existed before I arrived there. I kind of came for a cheap place to stay. <laughs> and then found, found out about him and the place afterwards. And so then, but I had a lot of faith in the way of life and it was immediately very, very inspired by the way of life. And so then, after a few months, I thought, how does this whole thing hold together? Why, why is it? Because it's a really tough life, you know. No sex, no drugs, no rock and roll. One meal a day, you know. Sleep on a grass mat, stay up all night once a week. You know, this is pretty demanding. You know, how come so many people want to live this way? What holds it all together? And you realise, oh, it's, you know, it's Ajahn Chah is the sort of inspiring principle because of him and his practice. Everyone gathered together has faith in this way of life as something that brings benefit, and then slowly by people's own experience, they, that, that nourishes that. But then, and re, but then watching him in the times that we were over at Bapong, or he was visiting Nanashat, that he wasn't controlling things. Mm-hmm. He was just sort of there, like watching, <laughs> to, kind of taking it all in. And you saw that even though he was a very charismatic character, he could kind of switch it on and switch it off. He, he could be invisible. And he could also fill the whole monastery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, he's sort of, he's, he's not there. Like, you know, he's not controlling things also, or, or saying we should do it this way or that way, or telling people what they should think. But he, he could just sort of disappear. Uh, and, uh, but also he could be incredibly big, you know, present. And if you can follow what I mean? Yeah. So that was really... I'm not that I was sort of taking notes about how to be an abbot when I was a confused anagaric, <laughs> <laughs> but just seeing like how how does that work? Because every institution that I'd been in, like with the university or schools, you know, there's the, the rule, the school rules, and there's the authority figures, you know, the headmaster or the professor and the, the system, and it and it is so much just on an honour basis. <coughs> And it was all held around Ajahn Chah's practice, and this one individual had sort of gone into the forest and let go of everything. And how there was this way of um, that he created an environment for practice, but he didn't want, he didn't need your attention. And if you were kind of flattering to him, or oh, Lumpo, you're so wise, you're so wonderful, you're so great. <laughs> he would he would embarrass you and shame you and kind of, or just kind of, uh, or just it, uh, he, I've seen him he would look through someone like you're so not there I'm not even looking through you like, there's no thing there to be looked through like you are absolutely not in my field of consciousness there there is nobody that I'm ignoring. Because <laughs> you, know, you know how when someone's ignoring you, like, <laughs> but he could he could just sort of just to make somebody completely non non present, and so that he didn't need to be loved. 
he didn't need to be approved, he didn't need to be listened to, he didn't need anyone's uh, praise or affection, he didn't need anything. And so that that was a, a, a kind of a, he saw that, that was one of the ways that he created the environment for practice and was a catalyst for that, but he didn't need to be the one right. at the center. But so then kind of taking a lead from that I see in the role of, and I'm sure yeah, the, from what I can tell from last week this is just what you do here is <laughs> that the, the monastery is the training environment and the Ajahn is just the kind of tweaker you just <clears throat> so you just adjust a little bit here and there but basically the monastery environment is the teacher exactly. and so that that was <clears throat> When I started to think about it, like, sort of four or five, six months into my life at Nanachat, I thought, yeah, really, it's the, that's what he's doing. It's like he's enabling the monastery to be the teacher, and he's kind of getting out of the way. But he has to be there to, <laughs> to kind of catalyze it. But he doesn't need to be approved of or praised, or it doesn't have to be at the center, but he is at the center. So there was this kind of, how does he do that? <laughs> But I feel that's that's really the the best way that an abbot works, you know. That that role of being a leader of a community is that your priority is to help catalyze a training environment, and the more that you can get out of the way, and just let the uh, people teach themselves, using the environment to 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 in order to help them be their own teacher, then you're doing a good job. And then and those I, disciples become the role models for how to live the life because that's what I told Lompoli when I lost last song I said no one ever told me anything but somehow I figured out what I needed to do by watching you and, and everyone else and he's he said, a very and good he, example yeah and he said yeah well, it's better to teach by example yeah. so I also there's a, um, a a passage in the Tao Te Ching which I feel is very very useful advice uh, it says, governing a country is like frying a small fish. You ruin it with too much poking. <laughs> <laughs> so for the vegetarians amongst you, I apologize, but that's what it says in the, in the text. But I, I, that's of great advice. You ruin it with too much poking. Yeah. If you try to be a control freak, you know, or, or just keep fiddling and adjusting. Well, no one lives with you. Hmm? No one lives there. They all leave. They all leave. <laughs> <laughs> they vote with their feet. They vote with yeah, exactly. So that's a good advice from the uh, from Latsu. Does anything I say contradict your mode no, of operation here, Ajahn? <laughs> Let me know if this is heretical doctrines. <laughs> When I was invited to come and take over from Ajahn Sarada, he was really keen to step down. Um, and he said that he, he'd always told himself, well, I have to be here forever because, you know, because, because. And then about June of 2009, he heard himself, in following his own practice, he heard himself saying, well, I, you know, I have to stay here till I die because... Why do I always say that to myself? I have to stay here until I die 
because why do I why do I believe that? I keep saying that to myself. What makes that true? Nothing, tomato. <laughs> he said it hit him like a ton of bricks. As soon as he asked that question, it was just like a hit by a truck. It was like duh. And then he finally And so it's really he just it's like his own his own wisdom was being waiting for him to sort of turn the you know, open the right box. <laughs> and it was so it was glaringly obvious as soon as he had that as soon as he allowed that thought, that question, why do I believe that? It was instantaneous. Mm. And then he realized I, yeah, I don't have to believe that at all. How old was he then? Seventy six. Seventy six. Yeah. Yeah. So then so then he invited me and um <clears throat> So I was coming from California, and um, I even though I'd lived at Amarati for 10 years, it was a very different place. I, I was there from 85 to 95. So it was very much the foundational years. It was mostly around repairing <laughs> very funky, funky old buildings. And uh, um, the temple wasn't built, and so it was all before that. So coming into a well-formed community where Lumpur Samed had been for 25 years. So uh, so what I did was, uh, through that the Vassar of 2010, I sat down with everybody, all of the lay people and the monastics in the community, one by one, and just had an hour or two conversation with everyone. Just How long did that take? Three months. <laughs> I just, yeah, everybody. Everybody who's right there. Just to... Rather than, okay, now, now, what we're going to do with Amravati is, I've decided, you know, I'm the new guy, so I've got this great idea, what you're all going to do. Like, <laughs> so that was uh, just to, to meet who was there. Was, and I felt that was really important. So. When people were grateful. Just to connect with uh, yeah. who, the idea of Amravati and the actuality of the people. Mm-hmm. It's a very different thing. Could you teach this to corporate CEOs? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no such thing as a CEO. There's no such thing as, uh, as monks or nuns. There is this monk, this CEO, and they have a name. They've got a family history. They've got where they were born and the, 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 the books they read. That's also very helpful. There's no such thing as nuns or monks. Mm-hmm. There's this person with their story and what brought them through the gate. Because as soon as you start to generalize, uh, then you, you kind of you lose that sense of who am I talking to? Because you're talking to a CEO or a you know, nun or monk, and you're talking to your idea about them rather than actually meeting a mm. meeting a person. Now, I do talk to. CEOs and business managers sometimes. Ashridge Management College is about three miles away from Amaravati. So we get invited to do programs with them from time to time. The last lot were from Bayer Pharmaceuticals. The German Bayer, B-A-Y-N, Bayer, Bayer. (laughs) (laughs) What did you, what was, uh, what kind of program did you get, just a talk or? Uh, giving it a talk and um, how to not create suffering. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
the you know about competition uh, doing how to work without creating anxiety and stress how to working with success and failure mm-hmm. those kind of things an interesting group that uh, again at, at Ashridge was um, uh, this big accounting firm called Ernst and Young mm-hmm. if you everybody knows them <laughs> <laughs> so they they uh, globalized and uh, they used to have little fiefdoms all over the planet and each little fiefdom ran its own world and then they globalized so all these former chieftains you know former sort of <laughs> heads of fiefdoms were suddenly not the the kind of the law in their own little area anymore mm-hmm. and so there was this um there was a whole group about 30 of them from all around the world that uh, were gathered at Ashridge. And were, basically, it was a grief. It was a grief counselling process. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty much all men. It was about like 28 men and two women. Um, but mostly guys who'd been disempowered. You know? The guys who were in their sort of 50s, early 60s, who were kind of... <laughs> they'd been the, the boss of their own little domain. And then suddenly they were just... Their, their bit was part of a, uh, of a globalized cog and they'd lost a lot of power so they were, they'd all been deposed from their own little thrones so it's like if you were the, the king of Chiang Mai and, uh, mm-hmm. and you were the king of Songkla and you were the king of Ubon and suddenly you're not a king anymore <laughs> there's one you, you, can, you can stay in your house but you're, you've lost your power so that was really interesting, because it was like a grief counselling process. Yeah. How to deal with that sense of, of loss, or who am I if I'm not in the, the, the boss of my... Uh, uh, thing. So, and it's interesting, when there's that, that degree of suffering, it's like the heavenly messengers mm. are out, then there's a lot of sensitivity. So you can talk about ego death mm. and grief. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah, of that loss of, of power and you know, who am I if I'm not the boss and they're surprisingly insightful I mean these, a lot of these people are dazzlingly intelligent but also world class sufferers <laughs> <laughs> on account of that same intelligence so. could you take some of this to governments if they want it <laughs> In, I have in Thailand um, there's a, a, a government body called the National Institute for Development Administration, NIDA. So, um, actually, in June I'm giving a, a talk there as well. I've been a couple of times to give talks to them. But and Ajahn Jayasaro used to talk to the palace. Yeah. yeah. Ajahn Jayasaro, um, the, the new king of Thailand, has instituted a weekly Dhamma session. And uh, he was watching Ajahn Jayasaro's Dhamma talks on YouTube. So he wanted to come every week, but Ajahn Jaya said, no way. So <laughs> things have been coming once a month. And the whole palace staff is required to show up, 2,000 people. Wow. So, and Ajahn Jayasaro was sort of, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Different mudra. <laughs> but he, they, he hasn't been jailed yet. So. <laughs> I think it's quite appreciative. Mm-hmm. The prince doesn't come, or the king doesn't come, but he everything's filmed and recorded. And, but the whole staff is there. <coughs> yeah, but people have to want the teaching. Mm-hmm. They have to ask for it. 
it only works if there's that openness. If you're being talked to or at, it doesn't work. That's why we have this, you know, Brahmachaloka chant. Is uh, it signifies that sense of please tell me, tell me something useful. <coughs> <clears throat> Do you think that um, well, you hear a lot about I don't know, cell phones and social media and technology? Does it fundamentally change? Or uh, you've seen a lot of lay people over the years, over the decades. Do you see something different now that makes it harder to uh, practice Dhamma, practice meditation? Is there more dust in our eyes now because <laughs> of modern technology, or is it just the same issues, different? Machines. Uh, well, it's a frequently asked question, but um, yeah, things create their opposites. So one of the effects of having this sort of information tsunami, <laughs> the information age, uh, uh, I mean, this, this, the statistics on how much information is generated is, is uh, mind-boggling. But things create their opposites, so that the effect of having this massive amounts of information and uh, and connectivity is that you often find people who are quite young who just say, okay, I'm not interested in that, uh, and then they'll park that whole realm much, much earlier because there there is such a, f- a flood of, of opportunity and different channels of distraction. You know, like They're invented faster than you can even try them out. You know, if you're a, a teenager, so there's a more of an inclination amongst people to to look past that. So that um, I, it's certainly that uh, to a certain degree in the West, there is the diminishing attention span is a, is an issue for children and their education and their development. Uh, the, 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 to give you a statistic, I don't know how up to date it is, but. Uh, the the novelist Neil Gaiman was giving a, a talk um, on literacy about three or four years ago. Uh, it was like a big sort of, uh, uh, kind of world book day or something. It was about child literacy, and uh, he had just been talking with one of the um, um, Eric Schmidt from Google. Eric Schmidt, yeah, from Google. Um, a few days before. And and he quoted this this conversation uh, during this this talk that he gave about literacy, and so promoting child literacy in libraries and and uh, and such like. And he said, according to Eric Schmidt, between uh, <coughs> the dawn of human writing and literacy, say about ten thousand years ago, to two thousand and seven, humanity created something like five exabytes of information, which is five billion gigabytes of information. Every book, every poem, every letter, every newspaper, every play, every uh, communication. So about five billion gigabytes of information in that 10,000-year period. Uh, <clears throat> since 2007, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, things have, have changed radically, and... Um, the uh, and now, uh, well, this was three or four years ago when Neil Gaiman gave that talk. He said we create the same amount of information, five exabytes of information, every two days. 
And that was three or four years ago, so it's probably in one day by now. So the, there's a, a really a, a flood of information, and the channels of distraction are, are many and various. So that the what happens is that you, for for children, they don't know how to be bored, they don't know how to be lonely, and they don't know how to be sad. So I have a little program going like boredom, sadness, and loneliness, <laughs> promoting. Seriously, because the, it's so easy to be distracted. There's so many ways to distract yourself. And they're so available and so sanctioned by society and by families that we, ne- we don't learn how to be alone. We don't learn how to be um, <coughs> to deal with sad and pain, uh, painful feelings. We don't know how to deal with boredom. And so the, 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 what happens is that that uh, the younger generation get more and more dependent on that level of stimulation. And so when things happen where you can't get away from the sadness or loneliness or boredom, they've got no, no tools. They've, they're, they're not equipped because there's so much um, available to just be colourful and move, mobile and interesting and interactive and catch your attention. So that... Uh, Again, we're we're an adaptive species, so that um, there it's not. I'm not sort of a apocalypse. I don't have kind of a doomsday fears or, or anything, but I certainly do see that children's attention span is shorter and shorter and shorter. And I, I see our information technology professor is nodding vigorously over here on my left. And parent. And parent. <laughs> So maybe you've got a few things you could say about that. I mean, I think, I think it's possible, although uh, to be determined, to use um, information technology in the same way that you were s- suggesting. I, I can't remember the phrase, but if it, if it doesn't work, make it work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like... How does it feel to not be using your cell phone or to turn it off, and then just use it as a as a way of developing awareness around what you ingest and how it makes you feel? So you turn off the Trump channel and you feel better, <laughs> <laughs> or you turn off, you know, getting excited by a royal wedding. I think I thought that was why you were here. <laughs> I didn't get invited. <laughs> opportunity to kind of like to, to learn to stop mm-hmm. but it, it does take some training we don't know how to do it yes and will your kids do it my kids no they've they've fallen into this they don't know how to be lonely or bored or, mm-hmm. or sad and and then when it does happen it get it plunges them into depression that's the thing is that they they don't have the resources that that um that you develop when the, those when life moves at a slower pace so, I mean, I'm not a kind of information analyst or, you know, I mean, I'm not going to study it very thoroughly, but that, I feel, is a big issue. And so the children being, so in America, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in America, literally, you'd find children who say that they want to be medicated because they're the only child in the class that isn't being 
isn't being medicated for ADHD or, like, or attention deficit problems. Uh, can I can I have some pills too, Mom? You know, I'm, I'm kind of everyone else has got medication. I haven't got anything. You know, I'm being left out. And so that the 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 approach, the chemical approach by American system is is I think is a disaster. But um, it's not quite so prevalent in England. But the the levels of depression and uh, anxiety and self-harming um, and psychological difficulties is, is staggering in the UK. 40% of school pupils between the ages of 13 and 16 have had some kind of psychiatric cons- consultation or treatment. 40%. So at least seen the school counsellor or had had to have some kind of... 40% between 13 and 16 so that's like a huge proportion I didn't even have a school counsellor <laughs> yeah me neither I mean, it didn't make sense you just got to clip around the ear yeah <laughs> <laughs> or go out you know you go, go out and you know, go throw play sports around, yeah, yeah throw a basketball around yeah. wow but the other the, uh, just the one other thing also that psychologically to do with with, with information technology that is uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but this sense of dispersed identity, that people don't live in one place, that they, they live through their phones. So, I mean, I, I have a, an iPhone, but I, I don't use it that much. <laughs> but people live through their phones. And so that you exist in all these places. You live in your Instagram account, in your in your WhatsApp account, in your in your. Um, in different kind of your your media presence is non-located. So whereas you're you're physically you know there's this body, you are on Facebook or you are on Instagram or you are in WhatsApp or you you you, you are in these places. Your interactions with others are in these non-located places. There's a kind of dispersal of identity, and that might sound a bit sort of well that doesn't really mean anything, but I, I do wonder about the long-term effects of that and how the the basic mindfulness of the body and the attention to the physical realm and that sense of locatedness <laughs> in meat space, you know, 3D body on the planet with gravity and air and food and people and that that sense of who you are as dispersed in, in, in a... In a uh, in a way that's never really happened before. Um, I, you know, I, it's not entirely with based on information technology, but it, again, you know, your reputation. A like, uh, hundred years ago, you would have known. Oh, there's a, there's a really good monk who lives up in the Canadian countryside. Oh, yeah, I've heard about him. Uh, I've read some of his books. So you you would be dispersed by the books that you've written or the people that heard about you. But it's all moving a lot slower. And that um, you know, and it's it's more. Um, and your identity wouldn't be dependent on it. It was more how people identify. How you. people identify with yeah. you. But now it's going more like the this weird situations where people's social media identity is more real than their physical identity. Mm-hmm. How they present themselves in social media is more who they are, and so that people, uh, in particular, again, like with teenagers. Again, I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but is teenagers putting a huge amount of attention into 
how they are seen in social media because that's who they are. Even with like the, the kid next to them in the class, they're not just looking at your face, they're looking at your, how you present yourself on your, in your whatever version of social media that, you, that you're using. So that this is like an extra layer of selfing <laughs> that is so disconnected from your, the, this, the karma of your birth. You're sort of you're creating a, an extra layer of persona that you're presenting to the world. That, uh, and that's becoming more and more normal. That your your profile <laughs> that people create is I mean, not so much amongst Buddhist meditators, you know, but in the in the more general world, that's sort of drifting in that direction, where the the way you present yourself to the world is more your mask is more real than than your heart, and that you don't want to let anyone really know what's going on inside you. <laughs> that as long as the mask is good, that we're good. <laughs> And that the drift in that direction, I, I find there's a concern. Like, where's that one going to go? But uh, yeah, again, I'm not an expert, but just sort of keep me up on the trends so that you can see that happening. And uh, you know, then and then particularly in America, where there's a lot of guns, and the people sort of form their identity with with uh, with weapons. Uh, from time to time, uh, you know, it can be fairly benign, but where your identity is, is sort of, I, I want to be a tough guy, or I want to be a martyr, I want to be a hero, then it can get you know, extremely destructive. And but even on in milder cases, just the the degree of anxiety about self-image um, for even in young children that like nine, ten years old, just. Are deeply concerned about their appearance, about being too short or too fat or too dark or too light, you know, whatever. They, uh, there's that sense of how you appear and how you, how the world sees you, is getting more and more important than, than what you are as a being. So, and no connect to the environment either. Well, it's also abstracted. totally disconnected. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of disconnected. It's abstracted. So, how you present yourself. To, to support that, um, I heard a couple of weeks ago from a University of Massachusetts professor, and Andre, I, I don't know whether you've heard this statistic, the average number of minutes that, um, delay in when an email is opened, three minutes. And when it gets to your account, I guess Google can somehow track the delay, three minutes. And so in terms of what people are prioritizing, you know, a three-minute delay on email, it's on average across. It's pretty amazing. But I have a lot of hope. I'm a very optimistic person. But, you know, you're asking about difficulties. I think if, we, if we're aware of trends and, and obstructions, then, you, you know, you can, you can learn from them. And also things can be guided in such a way that what starts out as a problem or a difficulty can be put to advantage in various ways. But I think it's up to us to be to pay attention and be creative. William, you've done that, haven't you? You've opted out of all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. At what age? I was never really too into social media. But I saw in my school that it was a big problem. Big problem, yeah. 
and you were an oddball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think greed, hatred, and delusion haven't really changed that much in <laughs> two and a half thousand years. It's one of the things, if you if you study the Vinaya Pitaka, it's stunning. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Two and a half thousand years ago, and it's exactly. I know that guy. <laughs> He's in the next kuti. <laughs> it, it is kind of amazing, isn't it? It is. So, How great is that? A large proportion hasn't changed. <laughs> people are still people. Well, it seems that the skills in lay life are always different because the, what, the, the skills required. If, if you're in one situation, some approach uh, is very effective, and then suddenly your situation changes, and now you've got to adopt a different strategy for dealing with the mind or whatever it is. And I guess it's the same thing in, in, as an abbot. That's different from being a, a novice or something. that You have to have different strategies to deal with different kinds of things that are coming up. Sure. So it's not as if there's one practice you can do your whole life and it'll work in all situations. And so if that's like if it's always these different different strategies, like those one liners that you use to say, okay, come back and then redirect. If there's a new situation like with social media, it's a new challenge. It there's before that came up, it wasn't as if life was singular and there was one approach. <laughs> we all knew what we were doing, and now it's falling apart. It was always so many different situations and circumstances. Yeah, people often ask, what's the most difficult thing you've had to deal with in monastic life? I say, well, it's kind of an irrelevant question. Well, it's not an irrelevant question, but exactly as you're saying what what's difficult for you as an anagarika is not what's difficult for you as a as a junior monk it's not what's difficult for you as a as a, a senior a senior monk you know there's whole different sets of issues that come up some people might have you know be totally comfortable in the, in the in the monastic life think this is great this is the perfect world for me and they get on well with everyone and they're like this is fantastic this is a really good fit then they become the work monk and it's like, and Joe Stalin, you know, has reappeared, <laughs> uh, and no one knew that. No, 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 no offense, to him. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not using it. Any, <laughs> present company accepted <laughs> in another monastery, yeah. and so no one knew. Even that person didn't know how they would handle authority being put in their hands if they're a follower then everything was a really, really good fit. Everything was really sweet. As soon as that person was then asked to do a, to lead and to, to, to be uh, giving instruction, then something else that was, uh, was, was germinal in the system suddenly ripened. <laughs> and then, then that's a whole area that they got to learn from and the people they live with have to learn from it as well. <laughs> so that you can't predict what's going to come, you know, Sort of down the pike, really. It's it's a it's a whole different sets of. I mean, I, I'm sure you would. The inner fascist who rises. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just didn't know, didn't know it was there. Yeah. <laughs> fame. Some monks fall apart with fame. fame. Yeah. yeah. 
believing your own advertising. <laughs> what well, do you do? You spend much time with students or school interactions here with the? No chemical does that. I I determined not to go to schools. <laughs> I just thought. Yeah, I, I never wanted to teach youngsters or kids or high school, and so I said, "Yeah, I won't do that." So someone—it's delegation, I kind of. I do little old ladies, <laughs> <laughs> dying people. <laughs> I'm good with little old ladies, right, Anoma? <laughs> They seem to be quite happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> You're my generation. <laughs> Chemical likes to go to the Catholic school. Kusla used to go, and who else is? Yeah, there's always someone. <laughs> and so these kind of issues that we were talking about—is that does he talk about that, or the or these these kind of things in Canadian society? Oh yeah, that all exists. Uh, I think he, yeah, he tries to listen to where they're at and then try to respond to more like the situation. Uh, but I, I've never heard his teaching in the school, so. But I, I'm, I'm certainly not in touch with that because I don't really l follow that in the internet. So, different generation. Well, I, I find I, it's important to keep up on the news because yeah, the things yeah. that are, people are always asking about these questions are that they're bringing their kids to, to me yeah, to yeah, yeah. please fix my kid usually I end up kind of <laughs> telling the kid you're fine and then trying to spending my attention fixing the parents <laughs> <laughs> really I'm not kidding it's 90% of the time it's the parents that are the problem not the kid what I do find is that, like the monks that come, they're really grateful for the restrictions that we have around the internet. Like the young monks can only have an hour a week doing emails and so on, and everyone is really likes that. Mm -hmm. So you can see it's a it's a big issue. Yeah, they're really grateful for rather than feeling resentful. No, I want two or three hours. It's mm -hmm. actually the opposite. There's a few in Amravati who are programmers who just yeah. <laughs> Don't want to go near it. Yeah. They've been burned. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, like like one of the monks that was here came. I mean, he spent maybe ten years of his life just doing video games, just locked in, you know, in, his, in his parents' basement, just vegging out on video games. And so, <laughs> total waste of time. And then kind of coming into this life and trying to, so he really was very strict with the computer because if he got into it he could just get lost in it for hours very easily so you can see that addiction there so now he's in the monastery where he can't no one has a computer came at Kalyanos in Melbourne oh right yeah but I do have confidence in that if you if you look at the way the world works, that things do create their opposites, so that I know I I'm, tend to be habitually optimistic or compulsively optimistic, <laughs> but things 
that's the way nature works, is that things create the opposite. So if they swing in, in an extreme in one direction, then it creates the conditions for them to go in the, in the opposite direction. So that, that I, I don't get too despairing about such things because they, they balance themselves out to a, to a great extent. And the, the careful attention is the best way that, as that balancing out happens, then things can be guided in a, in a good way. But if people are... Yoni Sol Manasikara, that kind of good, careful attention is being paid to, to things. And, you know, good, skillful outcomes can be, can be generated. And sanctuaries are important because they get a whole, like, total different kind of reflection from the consumer society. So I think these places are <coughs> instructive in themselves. They just stop, stop. Yeah, and, re- and retreats. Yeah. Retreats. Hand yeah. over your cell phone. Yeah. And some, sometimes people don't realize that that was in the small print. <laughs> and the phone in your car. <laughs> Some people, it's, it, it's almost like saying, give me your soul, <laughs> give me your heart. You know, they, I can't give you my phone, I can't give you my phone. No, this really is if you say, please just take your heart out and give it to me. <laughs> so, you know, the, the retreat centre people have a whole system. of. They take them in at the beginning of the retreat, lock them up in the safe. Because it's it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so strong for people. Yeah. <laughs>